We're going to finish our study of the book of Colossians today. We'll begin 2 Timothy next week. We've been looking at some of the names listed in the back of, in the, in the fourth chapter. And so what we're going to do today is pick out two names because they are two of the authors of the Gospels. And so the title of the message in just a minute will be, Who Wrote the New Testament? Based on the fact that both Mark and Luke are mentioned. Mark chapter 4, verse 10, and then verse 14. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Well, the title, Who Wrote the New Testament? Before I get to try to answer this question, I want to give you a contrast between the way we Christians see that God gave us our Bible with the way other religions say that God gave them their holy books. If you've ever been around Muslim folks, you know that Muslims literally revere and worship their holy book, the Koran. And this is what they believe happened. They believe that God literally spoke words to Muhammad, their prophet, and he called them out because he couldn't read or write. So he had to call out the words that he was hearing from God, and they wrote those down, and those words became the the Quran, and that's how they got their holy book. The Mormons have an interesting story, a far-fetched story, but interesting story. They say that their leader, Joseph Smith, one day was digging around in upstate New York and all of a sudden he came upon some golden tablets and right next to it was golden glasses. And if you put on the golden glasses, you could translate the golden tablets. So he got a farmer named Martin Harris to finance him. He went and stayed with him and he would finance the translation and the publication of this new book that he had found with the special glasses and the golden tablets. By the way, nobody ever saw those golden tablets. Nobody ever saw the special glasses. What he did in the farmer's house is he set up a room where there was a sheet that was drawn. He stayed behind the sheet, supposedly put the glasses on, and started calling out dictation for somebody to take down what he was reading with the glasses from the tablets. Well, Martin Harris's wife, Lucy, was skeptical, and after all, it was their money that was being used. So after he'd done several... Uh, pages of this, 116 pages actually, she came to her husband and said, how do we know that he's not a charlatan? I want to read what he's done so far. So realizing that he was about to lose his money, he allowed Martin Harris to take the 116 pages that he translated and give it to his wife, Lucy. She went and hit him. And then she said to Joseph Smith, if you really are translating from golden tablets, you'll be able to reproduce them exactly again. Just go start from the beginning, put on your glasses. Well, that caused a panic to seize Joseph Smith. The next morning he woke up and he announced that he'd been praying and God told him the first 116 pages weren't necessary. So he just picked up where he started. And that's how they think they got their holy book. Now, that's not how we got our Bible. God did not do dictation. John and John 3.16 It wasn't that God was up there saying, God so loved the world. Slow down, God. God so loved the world. Okay. No. What God did and how the Bible we have, if you want to know who wrote the Bible, there literally are two authors to every book in the New Testament. You have the human author, Paul, a pastor taking care of his people, or John, or Matthew, or Mark, or Luke writing Gospels of Jesus. 
But you also have the Holy Spirit inspiring what they're doing to make sure that every word is correct, every word is without error, every word is laced with the power of the Holy Spirit. So we believe that there's a sense in which if you ask the question, who wrote the Bible, you could literally say God wrote the Bible because the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Let me show you that with a couple of very powerful scriptures. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture, not parts. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Peter in his second letter gives us a little more details of how it happened. He says in verse 20 and 21, above all you know this, that no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Paul was writing Colossians, his, his, he was doing his best with his pastor's heart, but behind the words of Paul, he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Mark wrote his gospel, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote the gospel. And, and so the end result is this. When I open up my New Testament, I literally feel that I am hearing the voice of God. Many of you this morning woke up, didn't you? You opened up your Bible and you read. I was in 2 Corinthians this morning for my quiet time. And when I read that, I, I, I could just hear God speak to me because God is the author of the Bible. And off those, the pages jumps the voice of God who grips us and changes our lives. But, but God didn't just do dictation. He gave he allowed their personality to remain. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But let me, let me give you a story about the fact that behind this is the inspiration of God. E.V. Ryu, when he was 60, he was the most uh, famous scholar of ancient Greek in his day and time, was contracted by Penguin Books to do a fresh translation of the Greek New Testament. He had already done Homer's works for them. E.V. Ryu was an agnostic. And when his son heard that his dad had been hired to, con to translate the New Testament, this is what his son said. It will be interesting to see what father makes of the four gospels. It'll be even more interesting to see what the four gospels make of father. What happened as he translated the four gospels from the Greek into English, he got saved. His, he met Jesus. The Jesus on the pages of the book became real to him and he joined a church. Later on, he was interviewed by J.B. Phillips, who also did a translation in the middle part of the 1900s, and they were talking about their experience as translators of Scripture. Phillips said, Did you not get the feeling that the whole material was extraordinarily alive? Ryu replied, I got the deepest feeling. My work changed me. I came to, conclude, to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. Phillips later on in a book called Ring of Truth comments, and he says, I found it particularly thrilling to hear a man who's a scholar of the first rank, as well as a man of wisdom and experience, openly admitting that these words written long ago were alive with power. They bore to him as to me the ring of truth. So when I read the Bible, I hear God. But God didn't just do dictation. I also can tell the personalities of the person I'm reading. If you study for the ministry, eventually they want you to learn Greek. And they kind of give you a trick. 
Because Luke's Greek is the most educated, flowing Greek in the entire New Testament. Incredible vocabulary. They don't let you start with Luke. He's a, he's a doctor. He's educated. You'd expect it to be that way. John's gospel is the simplest Greek in the New Testament because he was an uneducated fisherman. So what they do when they start teaching you Greek, they give you some assignments out of 1 John or out of the gospel of John. I remember going home to the care and saying, this stuff is easy. I'm going to be able to translate the Bible because I was translating John. What I didn't realize, it was on about a first grade level. Run, spot, run. See, spot, run. That's, that, that's John right there. And there's no way in the world I could have gone immediately to Luke. But see, when God inspired John, he didn't raise his vocabulary to Luke's level. He spoke through an educated fisherman with that kind of vocabulary. When God spoke through Luke, it still had all of the touches of an educated man. So here we've got these two people that are mentioned in this passage, Luke and Mark. So let me tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Luke has two books in the New Testament, the book of Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You can't tell it by the number of chapters, but if you counted words, those are the two longest books in the New Testament. Together, Luke and Acts make up 27% of the New Testament. So Luke is very important to us. Now, we don't know exactly when Luke became a Christian, but because he was a Gentile and we find him popping up on Paul's missionary travels, it's, it's most likely that Paul led Luke to Christ. He met this doctor who was doing his work there in Europe and led him to Christ. And Luke, from that time on, put aside his career as a doctor just to become the man who always stood by Paul. So when you read through the book of Acts, you'll find him saying, we went here, we went there, we suffered this, because he was always standing by Paul. Now, when you get to the fact that Paul is arrested the entire time that he's there in Caesarea by the sea, Luke is there. On the boat ride where there's a shipwreck, Luke is there. We were shipwrecked. You get to Rome, here he is in, under house arrest, and, and Paul says, Luke is with me. This is a man that never left Paul. He was the man you could always count on. He was that faithful. But one of the things that moves me most is, according to church history, Paul would, after this book was written, would actually be called to stand before Nero, and Nero would give him the thumbs up. There was actually a letter from the arresting officer who said, this man doesn't deserve imprisonment or death. And so he said, you can go free. So he had a couple of years where he could go back to his missionary work, and then Rome burned, and Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And because of that, anybody who was captured who was a Christian was automatically given the death sentence. After that, Paul returned to Rome, was captured, and instead of being under house arrest, he's in the Mamertine prison. It's hard to get to see Paul. And in his very last letter, written to his friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, listen to these lonely words. Make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Do you get those words? This man could have been serving as a doctor, having a great life, but he said, I'm never going to leave you, Paul. And at the end of his life, the only one still there was, was Luke. But also, he also says, bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. 
So this man, Luke, is the author of one of the four Gospels and two and 27% of the New Testament. Now, how did he get his information for the Gospels? If you look at chapter two, uh, chapter one sometime, read verses one through four, Luke tells us that he interviewed eyewitnesses who saw all the things he wrote about and put them down in an orderly form. Because he traveled with Paul, we know he went with Paul to Jerusalem. He would have had time with Peter and with John and with many of the other apostles. He sat down with Mary. One of the reasons why we have so many details about Mary and the birth of Jesus in those early years is because Luke sat down with Mary and got her stories and wrote them down. So Luke is in the New Testament because he has written down the eyewitness testimony of those who actually knew Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, Mark is another gospel, and most scholars today believe that Mark was the first one to write a gospel. Why do we have his gospel in the New Testament? Well, let me explain why. Later on, Mark will be called by Peter in 1 Peter, my son Mark. Now, let me tell you what that means. Usually when somebody in the New Testament refers to somebody as my son, that means they led him to Jesus. Now, let me tell you about Mark. Mark's home, his mother's house, was a center for activity for the church in Jerusalem. When uh, Herod Agrippa decided to kill James to please the crowd, he said, man, that was a hit. So he arrested Peter and was going to kill him the next day. So the church said, we've got to gather and spend the entire night in prayer. They went to John Mark's house. He was just a young man, but they went to his house and had that all-night prayer meeting. And when the angel set him free, Peter went to John Mark's house and knocked on the door and said, your prayers have been answered. So he had grown up hanging out with Peter, grown up hearing those stories. He was in, in the middle of all that God was doing in that first church there in Jerusalem. So later on, we know that Mark became Peter's number one assistant. Night by night, he would sit by a fire while Peter would stand up and tell those stories firsthand. So I, I remember when we were there by Galilee and all that crowd showed up and he took five loaves and two feet. And he, he heard them firsthand. And, and I, I think one day it dawned on Mark, probably around AD 60, he's not going to be around forever. I need to write these stories down. And so Mark wrote down Peter's stories. And the reason why we have the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament is because the early church knew that when you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you're really reading the Gospel of Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. So here, the answer to that question, who wrote the New Testament? God wrote the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus wrote the New Testament under the power of the Holy Spirit so that we have an inerrant, infallible record of what God did in that first century and how God led people in that first century. Now, with that introduction, let me give you two more applications because I want to talk about these individuals, Luke and Mark, because they're so different. Luke was an intellectual, and the first truth I want to give you as I close today is this. Luke shows us that intellectuals need Jesus. His vocabulary is so lofty that you know he had to be the most educated person that wrote, in, wrote the New Testament. Uh, we don't know where he studied, but he had obviously studied. He had a brilliant mind. He became a doctor. He used all of the, the knowledge in that day to try to figure out what diseases and what sicknesses people had. This was a, a true intellectual, and yet he came to place his faith in Christ and follow Christ. 
Now, we don't know exactly the details about his conversion because we're not given them. All of a sudden, it just shows up and he's following Jesus. But I can guess this. Even if you're an intellectual, every single person has the same basic human needs. We all know we've blown it. So we need forgiven forgiveness. And he'd heard Paul talk about how we can be forgiven because Jesus died for us and rose again. And if anybody knows that everybody's going to die, it has to be a doctor because he's dealing with that all the time. And he heard Paul say, Jesus Christ conquered death. Whoever puts their faith in him will never die. Somehow that gospel rang true and he became a Christian. So in the person of Luke, we find an example of an intellectual who comes to Christ. And I'm grateful that our history is full of intellectuals who've come to Christ. The reason I say that is because many people claim that Christianity is only for the poor or the intellectually weak. That's not true. It's for everyone, including those who would consider themselves intellectuals. One of my favorite intellectuals who came to Christ is a man named C.S. Lewis. We quote from him often. C.S. Lewis was raised in an interesting home. His mother was a consistent Christian, and everything he learned about the Lord, he basically learned from his mother. His father was a busy lawyer who had little time for his two boys. When his mother was, when he was eight, his mother contracted cancer. In that day and time, folks, what they did was they would bring a surgeon to your home, give you ether, and operate in your own bed. So he and his brother stood outside a closed door while a doctor was in the bedroom and removed the cancerous tumor. And when the nurse came out first, she saw how disturbed little C.S. was and said, don't worry, son, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, God's going to heal your mother. God didn't heal his mother. She died. And as soon as she died, that father who didn't have time for those boys just packed them off to boarding school. And he had no tenderness in a home left after that. And folks, that blow where he was disappointed in God because somebody gave him a false promise and then being shipped off to school where he didn't have the love of an earthly father just caused him to go far away from God. And that was cemented even further. His walking away from God was cemented even further. When World War I broke out, he was like many of the young men in Britain. He was drafted, went to fight in the trench warfare. There's no way to imagine the horrors. They came from living in the trench and then sending wave after wave over to their death, one after another. Just that stalemate that happened and all the death that happened. And many of his friends died in the trenches. Finally, he was wounded, sent back, and was able to return to college. But he'd witnessed so much senseless pain, death, suffering. So he had come to the conclusion there can't be a God because there's too much pain and suffering in this world. So he threw himself into his education, became a professor at Oxford, and became best friends with a man named J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And J.R.R. Tolkien was a committed Christian. And as Tolkien began to talk with Lewis, he began to show him from the Bible, from a biblical worldview, how there are answers to this problem of pain. And that began to draw him back to the God his mother had taught him about. I love the way he described his conversion night because he, he calls himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He said, you must picture me alone in the room in Magdalen College night after night, feeling whatever, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him 
whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Let me tell you what he did for his first Christian work. The first book he wrote as a Christian was the book entitled The Problem of Pain. And he said he went back to the Bible, studied it, and he found the answer to why there's so much suffering and pain in this world and how the Bible can help us over that intellectual hurdle. So Luke proves to us that an intellectual can come to Christ. Mark proves to us that failure does not have to be final in the Christian life. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. We're told in chapter 13 that when they went off on their first mission trip, that Barnabas said to Paul, let's take Mark with us. And he went with him and stayed a little while. But in Acts 13, 13, it said that he left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now they left out of Antioch, but mama was in Jerusalem. So he went on this mission trip, didn't last long, and then he went back to mama. I know a lot of people say, we don't know why he left. I think that's it. I think he just got had a rough time and wanted to go home. I, can I just give you a, an experience in my own life? In 1974, I was hired by what was the home mission board then. It's the North American Mission Board now. And uh, my guy that led me for that summer said, don't go back to college. God's hand on you. It's, God's hand's on you. Stay and let me put you to work. And we'll just be using you all over this country. He said, I'm going to send you to Houston to work in a great church there in Houston, Texas as an intern under one of the <coughs> most creative, creative pastors. And I went and told my daddy, he said, son, don't do that. You need to finish college. But I said, God's got his call on me. You know how dumb a student can be. God's got his call on me. So I went and I was there for three months. After I'd been there three months, I called home. My dad said, how you doing? I said, dad couldn't go any better than what it's going. He said, son, if you're that miserable, why don't you come home? I said, I'll be there tomorrow. I think that's what happened to John Mark. He failed. But friends, here we find him back reconciled with Paul. Paul, by the way, when, when Barnabas said, let's take him, let's give him a second chance, Paul in chapter 15 said, I'm not having any part of this. And they had a sharp disagreement. I'm not giving him a second chance. And Paul proved to be wrong and Barnabas proved to be right. And here we have one of the letters written toward the end of his life. And Mark is there with him. And when he's on his death row, he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. Now I want to give you one truth here as we close on this point. Mark shows us a truth that all of us need to know. I want you to listen to this because I want every Christian here to know this. Every one of us Christians will fail God Often. Did you hear me? Every one of us Christians will fail God often. And one of our duties, especially to new Christians, is we need to warn them about that. They become a Christian. They're so in love with Jesus. I'm going to be so different. We've got to let them know there will come a time when you will fail God. Because if we don't teach them how to get up when they fall down, we've done them a disservice. And Mark is a picture of somebody who fell down and got back up again. And I think one of the reasons why he fell down and got back up again is because the man who led him to Jesus had fallen down. You remember Peter had led him to Christ. 
And Peter there on that night when Jesus was arrested, stood outside of Caiaphas' palace. And the little girl came up. You're one of his. No, I don't know him. Three times. I don't know him. And then the cock crowed. And then Jesus walked out and looked at him. I imagine that Mark heard Peter. Folks, that was in the very first gospel written, the gospel of Mark. Mark would have never known that story if Peter hadn't told it himself. Peter told that story on himself so that people would know you can fail God, but he's not done with you. And that's the message God wants you to hear from the person of Mark today. Even if you failed God, he's not done with you. There's a type of pottery called kintsugi pottery. This is an example of it here. It's done in Japan. (coughs) What they do is they make a fresh pot and then they drop it. And they pick up the broken pieces. They, They broke it on purpose. And then they put it back together again and actually accentuate the places that were broken. They're not trying to hide it. But they do that by gluing it together again with gold. And even if that pottery was valuable before it was broken, it is immeasurably valuable because it's beautiful in a new way and it's got gold that has put it back together. And I think that's what God's grace does. When I fall... And I become broken. God takes the gold of His grace and puts the pieces back together and says, I've still got something for you to do. So I want to leave with these words as I close this sermon. If you're here today and you're an intellectual and you feel like they're just questions that you you have not found an answer to, my encouragement to you is go read that New Testament. And you'll find the answer to every major question that we humans have ever faced right here in these pages. Read the New Testament. And if you're here today and you have blown it and you're wondering why in the world did I even show up at church, I want to tell you something. Go read your New Testament. Because the Bible is ruthlessly honest about its heroes and puts in every one of their faults as well as their successes. God still has something for you. Will you pray with me about that? Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will take these words and just bring encouragement to hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that that person who feels like they've been told that Christianity is not for somebody who has a mind, I pray that you would show them how wise your word is. I pray for that person that Satan's whispered to them and said, it's over, they're through. I pray that your grace will overpower the lie of the devil and they'll get their life put back together again. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.